Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Sounds Familiar. My name is Caleb. My name's Stephanie. My name is Justin. And tonight, we have no quotes, for we are talking about film. That's film with a little Cinema. accent over the... the La scene. <laughs> <laughs> right, we are being uncharacteristically... Uh, Pretentious. C- cinephilic? Oh, that sounds dirty. <laughs> 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 um, tonight... <laughs> um, because we are talking about some very Oscar-y... Uh, Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah, so very Oscar bait and Oscar winning entries tonight. Yes. It's a, it's a good means... feeling. We've been very blockbuster yeah. especially the last <laughs> <Exactly>. two weeks. <laughs> we have been popping that popcorn, metaphorically. Unfortunately, not literally. Um, <laughs> maybe we should start to... No, we don't want to be chewing popcorn on, on mic. That sounds like a bad idea. Anyway. So, <laughs> just my thought. Justin would murder us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, kind of our point of comparison th- this time around is the uh, the single shot film. Um, and if you haven't guessed, because we haven't said it, or if you didn't <laughs> read the title of the episode, yeah. <laughs> we're discussing Birdman and 1917. Right. Not that far apart, these two, and yet extremely different, like, as mm-hmm. movies. Yes. And they are, to be fair, what, what, how far apart? Three years? No, 2014 to 2019? Five years. I was thinking 17, like 1917, but 2019, (laughs) yes. So five years apart. And I know there have to be other examples of single-shot movies, but I can't at this moment think of any. There definitely are. Uh, There's not that many. Um, I also want to point out this is one of the rare times where we are... Our point of comparison is uh, the filmmaking technique itself and not so much the content in the story, yeah, which is That's a good point. Ooh. That isn't something we've done a lot, is it? Mm-mm. I'm trying to think of other other filmmaking techniques we could have episodes about, and I'm not really sure. Maybe like black and white movies or Shaky something? Shaky cam, found footage, Sh- et, yeah. et, cetera, et cetera. Well, th- that's true. There are a lot of found footage, though it's mostly confined to the horror genre, which one has to ask found footage could surely be used in other contexts too or like not even necessarily found footage but like very clearly amateurly filmed <laughs> footage <laughs> like um a movie that's constructed as a series of home movies um anyway <laughs> that's just a thought feel free to use that for free uh whichever directors want to do that um <laughs> But yeah, so um I think we're ready to get into it. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. <laughs> drum beat begins. <laughs> I love the dr- the jazz drum beat throughout it gives it this this energy this life through it i don't know i i You're vibe right. with it, it hard it's a choice like with a capital c and yet i think it really works so if i'm not mistaken the only time um something other than purely percussion is used in the score uh is a single scene 
uh, and it, that has some strings to it. That's when the guy is outside the theater and he's uh, holding onto the rail and he's yelling, yelling Macbeth. Oh um, shit! I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that's the only point right. in the movie that has other instruments. So it's actually, uh, it, it's one of the director's friends. Uh, the drums were done by a guy named Antonio Sanchez, and I did a little bit of research on it just because um, I thought it was. It, the way this film was scored is very interesting, and I do recommend looking into it. It is a very, very cool story and how they did it. Just to give you the quick uh, Wikipedia rundown, uh, during these sessions, the director would uh, walk him through a scene while Sanchez was improvising, uh, guiding him by raising his hand to indicate events such as a character opening a door or describing the rhythm with verbal sound. So the director would literally be standing there and like raise his hand when something like interesting was happening, and that would change the way he was drumming. And that is nuts. I love that shit. That is really I cool. I love it. No, it's, 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 I love it. It does feel, it definitely feels improvised, but I, I love the way how it's, okay, some beats you'll be like, oh, it feels like he's hitting the drum for emphasis with the delivery of the lines. Mm-hmm. But then, like, the second part of, like, the line delivery, maybe it won't do that. So, it, it, like, some parts it feels in t- like it's, uh, it was done afterwards, but then, like, the rest of the line, it won't be hitting directly with the delivery. So you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't. Like, it, maybe it yeah. wasn't synced up perfectly. I'd love they, to watch it again sometime just paying attention to the drums and, like, what they're doing. Because the, it's... Go on, go on. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't really have an answer uh, that. Uh, my, my favorite in- instance of this is the first time that... Uh, Riggin and Mike are having an argument and they're outside the theater walking to the bar um, when they stop um, under the lights of the theater. The drums uh, to Edward Norton yelling at Michael Keaton just like, it sounds like a song. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Right, it, and it it kind of reminded me of that guy that you watch on YouTube. like who The guy plays... who does the drum beats to like Family Guy and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, other shows. It's always sunny. The, it's always sunny. Yes, well, I love the drums set to yeah. the um, Pepe Silvia scene. Oh, it's See, that Beautiful. one is very much like he's playing the drums at following the rhythm of the characters talking, which is its own thing. Obviously, that can't be very easy either. Um, but it's also once you pick up on it, it's like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Like whereas the the one in Birdman is very. I don't know, it feels very improvisational, but, mm-hmm. like, in a good way. But, yes, as you were saying, it added kind of this really, really kind of kinetic energy to what was going on um, mm-hmm. and made it feel like, I don't know, it, I'm not going to say this as a matter of fact because I don't re- really remember how it went in the movie itself, but it almost felt like they were kind of um, Riggins' inner monologue, sort of like that... I don't know if you're someone who <laughs> experiences the world that way or maybe has experience with anxiety or anything like that. It can feel like you have that sort of like weird percussive energy going on in your mind. Like <laughs> even while you're doing seemingly normal things, it like speeds up and slows down. It's more intense at moments. Like it almost felt kind of like that, like it was a manifestation of his, I don't know, his subconscious, his experience of things. Um, and like I said, I, I won't say that for sure because I don't remember actually if it was present in scenes where Riggin was not present, which is something we'll get into after a little bit. Um, 
but it, it felt kind of that way, like a, a manifestation of that, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, even the movie itself, like the single shot concept is executed differently from the way it is in 1917. It feels much more like directly right. from that character's perspective, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Also, the, the, like they, they do full on transitions, um, like the scene when Edward Norton and um, Emma Stone are like making out in the up in the ropes above the stage and the camera like pans over the side and down onto the stage where Edward Norton is performing in the play like later on that evening. Yeah, the passage of time is not always very clear, though I suppose that, uh, that has to be intentional. Uh, so I guess I'll I'll go first since we kind of skipped over experiences with this movie. Um, oh, this you're is my... right. Oh, we did. no. <laughs> we uh, this, this is, is a great my... story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is my second time watching it, and uh, I'll let I'll let Caleb uh, handle it. He tells it better than I do. This is my second time watching it, and um, picking up on the transitions this time around, I was a- I was looking for them, so I was able to see them. Like, there's a few yeah. whip pans to a wall, or like uh, yep. it'll go dark when someone crosses a door, like. Uh, you're able to see them, but it's still insanely well done that the first time uh, I was watching it, I didn't even notice, and I'll let Caleb take it from there. (laughs) So this is my third time seeing the movie. Um, The first time was with Justin in theaters, and we did not know the gimmick going into the movie. And um, I guess word of mouth just hadn't gotten around. It was probably 45 minutes into the movie. We're sitting there in the theater. And I turn to Justin and I go, has this all been one shot? <laughs> and he leans off the like back and says something along the lines of, holy shit, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> and then we were just like, I was entranced by it at that point. Like I was already, I had already bought into the movie's whole thing. Right, but as soon as I realized that there it had been the illusion of a single continuous shot that entire time, I just was so caught up in that and entranced by it. I'm a film person, but I'm also a dumbass, so <laughs> that it some of this stuff you're just gonna have to bear with me that like I don't always get it <laughs> like <laughs> like i I will admit like sometimes movies are just a little esoteric for me, and my tiny little normie mcdonald's brain can't quite grasp it um and that's how i feel sometimes with this movie like some of the transitions okay like for instance the very first shot of the movie which is not part of the long takes um it's like a a comet or or a a meteor something or a phoenix you sure yeah something well but it looked like it was falling as opposed to rising as part of why i say that it looked like it was angling towards the earth as opposed to away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I mean, you know, falling star, that makes sense given the character. Um, I just wasn't entirely sure what I was looking at and why. <laughs> Question. Uh, when that comet, Phoenix, what have you, is shown in the later half of the movie, uh, mm-hmm. is it going up or down? I don't remember. If it's going up, I think that is some severe symbolism. <laughs> I don't recall. I actually don't recall either. Wow. That sucks. Oof. We're all dumb. Huzzah. <laughs> oof, boof, oof. I know. I kind of wish we could remember that. Because that, you're right. That does feel like it would be symbolism. I'm, I'm pretty sure. 
at least in the first shot, that it was going down. It was. Um, I just kind of... I'm saying Phoenix, because, you know, later on there's that, that scene with him and Birdman. He's like, Birdman 4, Phoenix Rising. They'll eat that shit up. You know? Um, <laughs> and it doesn't quite look like just a meteor, you know? It's it's intentionally hard to make out what it is. It's not a meteor. It's a cookie It's a cookie Stephanie, what are your experiences with Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance? Yeah, can we talk about that subtitle? We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, so this is only the second time I've seen it. Um, the one time I watched it before, I think was like senior year of college. Something like that. Like the year after it came out with Caleb. I, I, I seem to remember watching it with him in my dorm room. Yes, I believe we rented it from Vanderbilt's library. Yeah. I was like, Stephanie, you gotta see this movie. <laughs> so <laughs> It was one of my first films. Film. <laughs> so the good news is that I understood it more this time around. <laughs> the bad news is that I still feel like I don't completely <laughs> understand it. <laughs> um, which is, I, I to be fair, I feel like it is kind of a combination of things. For one thing, it is, like I said before, meant to be a little, you know, arty, a little esoteric, a little a little difficult to grasp. Um, there's layers there. Also, it, I don't know, it seems to be about kind of a point in life, a life experience that I don't have much frame of reference for, I guess, at this stage of my life. Like, it is very much about an older person's experience. Um, and I guess more specifically an older person who maybe at one point had, was making more of a mark on the world and living more of the kind of life that they wanted to live than they are currently, mm-hmm. which I, I feel like I'm maybe not quite far enough along in life to completely understand. Um, though I'm sure the Academy understood it fine since they're all old and white, apparently, <laughs> um, but that's that's not a knock. It's real. It's really good, and it does give you a lot of empathy for that kind of experience. I mean, despite the fact that none of us really have had it, um, it, it is extremely like extremely empathetic, and that is, I guess, maybe one of the best features of the single shot film as a concept, in that it feels so immediate, kind of. It, it feels so urgent. Um, it feel it feels very much like you are experiencing exactly uh, exactly like what that person is experiencing. You you never yeah. leave the moment. You feel much more like you're experiencing oh, it yeah. in real time. Extremely. Um, and you know it. Gosh, like there was uh, that that one part where Emma Stone's character Sam, um, she kind of like goes off on her dad, like and basically like. <laughs> says some really hurtful things like they're true but that doesn't mean they don't hurt um and then you kind of see in like real time her face kind of go like oh shit that was really mean some great acting on her part. oh yeah extremely like um, just the little micro expressions mm-hmm. like you see the transition and then it like pans around to his face and like he looks so just crushed it's just the, that whole interaction is so sad the, the movie does that twice there are at, maybe even three times. I don't recall. There are at least two times where someone is telling him off, monologuing at him, and the camera pulls in super tight, and it's got almost this fisheye type effect on the person talking. It does it once with Sam when she's going off on him, and it does it again when the review when the critic 
is is yeah. going off on him, and it's the same thing up tight Ooh. and close yeah. with the distorted angle, and then we then once it's over, we pull back. And we can see. Right. And so it feels very much like his experience of seeing that person saying these things. Like, uh, it feels very much directly from his perspective. Ooh. Or from Birdman's perspective. (laughs) Uh, So another another camera technique that I'm a big fan of is when two characters are talking in this film and they, it's a very tight shot with their profiles and there's... barely anything else in the frame it's just their faces uh the sides of their faces and they're just having a conversation i love that shit that yeah that's cinema like that is making great use of a property of cinema that you can't get in theater unfortunately right and that is like being super up close to what is happening Mm -hmm. and that is that's a good that's a good thing. Like that is using your medium like to its fullest extent. And I, I'm pretty sure that was something that happened several times. Like I noticed it a, a couple times in the movie. Um, and of course it has to feel very deliberate, like to be that that close and that intimate. Um, yeah, the two standouts are um, Mike and Sam on the roof of the theater and um, Riggin and the critic in the bar. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that good. was, yeah. Um, and the cast, the cast, everyone brings pop, pop. it. Yeah, they're it's fucking so bringing good. it. Um, Michael Keaton, perfect casting for this type of role. Uh, the perfect casting for this specific role. Yes. The the role of a washed up actor who was famous for playing a superhero back in the 90s, <laughs> uh, which is what Michael Keaton did, and now he's trying to do something artsy with this 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 uh, play. <laughs> meta, meta. And here's Michael Keaton here to do this super Oscar-baity right. film. <laughs> and then and there, there's enough real world. This movie is pretending to be in the real world, right? Like this isn't yeah. a, a fantasy world. This, yeah, they reference the, the only like thing Marvel that's and different, everything. And the like... only thing that's different is he was Birdman instead of Batman. Yeah. And so I love. At, at one point, he turns on the or he he walks into his his room and the TV's on and it's talking about Robert Downey Jr. and his billion dollar Iron Man franchise. <laughs> and he gets pissed off and he turns it off because like you know, that was almost him. That could have yeah. been him. Like he was the original big superhero. And then here's Robert Downey Jr., another washed-up actor, given a second chance. Yeah, and it's interesting because it feels like, whereas Robert Downey Jr., I to be honest, I don't know that much about his career before 2008, but it feels like a reverse Robert Downey Jr. with him, where it's like, whereas, you know, maybe an actor like Robert Downey Jr. started out with smaller budget stuff and then went on to be in, like, super blockbustery like light popcorny franchise stuff in Hollywood whereas Riggin is trying to go from the latter he's trying to go from being kind of a non-serious Hollywood like uh, costume tights kind of guy to a serious actor on Broadway and in some ways that seems more difficult like you would think with that kind of foundation it would be easier for him and yet I guess what the what the, like people like the critic and Mike are supposed to personify is kind of that resistance to him coming into that 
arena. Because how dare he, you know? Yeah. He's new money. <laughs> you know, we're old money. Exactly. Like, right, right. And and those kind of dichotomies, I, uh, I had some notes about it. Not really a lot. I just wrote down actor versus critic slash stage versus screen. Um, those kind of dichotomies are explored a little bit, which I thought was interesting. It um, is. I the I the movie kept making me think of Ratatouille. Um, <laughs> because of critics. Yes, because he goes off on the critic and he's like, these are all just labels. You know, doing this costs you nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, this play cost me everything I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he goes monologue at the end of Ratatouille. Ways, you know, in in many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk little, at you know, at the risk at the risk of others. Yeah. You know, um, they, they and she is aware that she has the ability to have this place sink or carry on just at the stroke of a pen. I thought, like, I thought that was interesting because <laughs> it's clearly coming from the perspective. of of a creator as opposed to a critic um because i don't know it's interesting how movies like this and ratatouille kind of position uh critics as villains almost or at least as antagonists when it i am sure it can feel that way but it also feels a little unfair (laughs) because it's like uh, a critic has just as important a job in some ways because they're a, a lens through which the public can make their own decisions, sort of, um, through which they can uh, hear ideas and uh, through which they can hear or read them in a way that, like, makes more sense and kind of distills the experience down to a few key concepts. And so <laughs> it's a little funny to me how movies like this and, like, Ratatouille are, like, critics just exist to destroy us. <laughs> and it's like... I- I totally understand that, but also it feels a little, a little unfair. Right. Um, I, this movie has me feeling conflicted because, <laughs> on the one hand, you know, they're a little bit right. Critics, uh, I guess, do risk very little in you doling out judgment and determining what is good and what must die. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I hate when you critique someone or something and someone's response is, well, I'd like to see you do that. (laughs) Listen, pal, I don't look, I don't have to be able to make a screen accurate, a new hope stormtrooper armor to know the details required to go into it and judge it and be like, you know, they got the paint wrong. Exactly. The the gun holsters on the wrong side. I'm sorry. (laughs) A perhaps a more a slightly more charitable reading of this would be that the critic is representative of Riggins' own insecurities, and that it's not so much that the movie is saying, "Wow, this bitch writing a negative review of this play," and more that like she is kind of the the synthesis of all these things that he is afraid of mm-hmm. and insecure about, and he he's maybe projecting onto her a little bit. He- Sorry, or Justin, you looked like you were going to say something. Uh, no, uh, I I had like four thoughts and now they're all like gridlocked in my brain. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, We're uh, all talking so much. <laughs> um so the the critic versus artist um hold on, give me a second to formulate this thought otherwise I'm going to sound like an idiot. <laughs> oh, buddy, you want to sound like I think a big thing for the argument of critic versus artist um, that I feel like 
maybe not specifically this film, but a lot of things that deal with uh, critics as villains um, is not necessarily that they are um, not risking anything, which is the point that this film is making, but uh, it's that artists create art for the audience to take in and then decide how they feel. So a lot of artists feel like uh, critics kind of capitalize the conversation and control mm. where the audience is going. So I, I see yeah. I see the argument against critics. Me, as a uh, filmmaker and writer, but also doing this podcast, I kind of yeah. ride that line. <laughs> yeah. By the way, anyone who wants to work with me that I was mean to in this podcast, just know I did it out of love. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I don't think there are any movies that we've done on here that we have just trashed across the board. I would say the closest one is Rise of, Rise Skywalker. of Skywalker. And even that we had a few nice things to say about. So <laughs> We like liking things on here. Mm. <laughs> so... Caleb. I was just thinking about what, what Stephanie said about her being like he could be projecting on her but her being like the synthesis of his fears like he is here because he knows he is a washed up Hollywood actor right so there are very the things she's saying are judgmental and like she does not know him at all but they're also not entirely untrue and like he knows that like that's the whole reason yeah. he's here that's probably what yeah. even drives him to attempting to shoot himself on stage she's kind of also representative of uh these artistic gatekeepers um her so more uh than sam and sam herself isn't a gatekeeper but she lays out the technological barrier um that older artists uh and me because i'm a terrible terrible millennial uh, <laughs> have to get through to be relevant uh, in these modern times. So she is representing a gatekeeper from the way things were and just the world itself is a gatekeeper for the way things are. And he feels trapped in both directions. Yeah, and she even like, <laughs> she seems like someone who even within theater might be a little resistant to like certain things. Um I mean, let alone, you know, Hollywood actors coming into the theater. But, yeah, she seems very old guard. And, like, if it doesn't go this exact way, it's not art. Which, once again, I I think that character is pretty pretty blatantly an amalgamation of a certain Mm -hmm. type of person. Which exists, definitely. Um, But... Yeah, I think not, it's not meant to represent a real person so much as kind of a very present fear for for new artists or people who are new to a certain type of art of the kind of old guard that is is like you said gatekeeping it very mm-hmm. fiercely, which <laughs> which is a real thing for sure. Uh, one last thing about the critic from me, uh, I will say that the scene with her and Mike talking to each other and she says, I'm going to give you a bad review. And he's like, I'm sure you will if I ever give you a bad performance. I was like, oh, just kiss already. I know. I was going to say, weirdly, the sexual tension in that scene was crackling. They've already banged. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, that's what he meant when he said, when I give you a bad performance. Let's be real. (laughs) Oh, going. (laughs) I know. I, I, uh, I ship it. Uh, Mike, what, yeah, what let's is, talk what about does Mike, Mike for a second. What does Mike represent? Hmm. I expected to hate Mike, largely because he's played by Edward <laughs> Norton, and he <laughs> tends to play hateable characters. Uh, yeah, but he does it so well. 
Yes. <laughs> See, that's the problem with casting him as the lead in The Illusionist. He was playing against type. Yes. Um, <laughs> he was playing against type as someone who we're supposed to root for. When Our natural reaction to seeing Edward Norton on screen is like, oh, wow, what a dude. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I am torn on his character because, you know, there are the scenes where, like, he tries to force his girlfriend to have sex with him on stage. Yeah, that was... Um, hey, hey, hey. And, you're like, and she's like, you haven't been able to get it up in six months, but you Ooh. could for that. Ooh. Um, and you're like, oh, this guy's... Well, that's hey. how that's how you know um, that he has a problem. He's like, Right, um, he's so... <laughs> um, but, like, the first scene when he shows up and um, he's running lines with Riggin and, like, they're working through that scene and figuring out how they can tighten it up, and you're like... Damn, that was really good. I kind of like this guy. He is an asshole, and he is pretentious, and he is a net bad person. But he is also passionate and cares deeply about what he is doing, so it compels you to like him a little bit. Right. Right. He's one of those a-holes who you hate because you know that he is exactly as good as he thinks he is. Ugh. Yeah. Right? I hate like, those people. He is good and he knows it, but also, <laughs> even worse, he's right. <laughs> uh, uh, the worst. Yeah, and I guess I think of it in terms of what he has to represent to Riggin, and it must be, like, the fact that they share so much screen time, there has to be, like, a point to it as in, like, maybe... Like, Mike represents the kind of actor that Riggin wishes he could be, but at the cost of being kind of sociopathic, you know? like it... mm-hmm. Right, what do you risk to be, to be that kind of person? Well, and he even says, like, when he's talking to Sam, and God, I wish I could remember the exact context of this, but it's something like, um, she says something about oh it wasn't hard for you and he says well like nothing's hard for me on stage or something along those lines like giving the impression that all his problems are off the stage on the stage is the only place that he can be really perfect and he is but everything off that is a complete mess like that's the price he pays in a way so to me it felt like it has to be some kind of foil for Riggin in that well, I say that, but Riggin's not a perfect person off the stage either, so it's not an exact comparison, but maybe it's like representing a, a certain humanity that he would have to give up in order to truly perfect his craft. I don't know. Hey, hey uh, just, just while I'm thinking about Edward Norton, a uh, un, uh, underrated moment in the film, I think, is when Sam and Mike are on the roof for the second time, and... He asks, well, what did he do that was so bad to you? Talking about, like, Riggin as a father. And she's just like, well, he was never there. And he just, like, kind of laughs and takes a drag from the cigarette. I was like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Did you interpret that as him having daddy issues or something? Uh, I think that was him taking that as... I think that was him taking that as uh, he was expecting some sort of abuse or for him to actually have done something to her. And so he wasn't taking her uh, contempt for her father seriously in that moment. And it was such a small thing that said so much about what happened to him in his past that an absent father is like, oh, that's nothing. (laughs) And interestingly, the only point where he ever shows any real, like, sympathy or or kindness toward toward Regan is when he 
kind of like out of nowhere makes up that whole horrific story about how that ends up being fake about how his father abused them and Micah's just like whoa whoa what dude I'm oh god I'm uh I'm, I'm sorry that's awful and then Regan is immediately like yes yeah, psych <laughs> you know, so see funny. I can act too bitch you know, yeah. <laughs> the pain of not having enough pain <laughs> is still pain <laughs> <laughs> our, our second community reference of the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it felt like like and that was kind of funny, but also it was a super cheap move by Regan to be like, yeah, anybody, nobody's gonna directly say to your face like, yeah, you're making that up when you just suddenly come in with this horrible story of parental abuse. <laughs> like, right. Also, he was making it up at Edward Norton because he did just provide an interview with um the paper giving Riggins' story as his own. Yeah, good point. Yep. Which, wow, jeez, not a, really not a cool thing to do, bro. Right, which is really... (laughs) Oh, um, you go first, that's fine, that's fine. (laughs) Oh, no, no, mine was like, mine was a kind of segue if you had something to say about it. I was just gonna make a shitty Parks and Rec reference, so I guess (laughs) Stephanie should go. Okay, I was going to say. It's interesting because it seems like a lot of, like, Riggin spends a lot of time trying to I don't want to say learn from Mike, but kind of trying to be the kind of person Mike is. And that was a rare example of Mike trying to be Riggin, which is like, huh, what's going on there? Like, is there some kind of weird symbiotic relationship going on you here? Mean his life isn't interesting enough. Yeah, I don't know. That was kind of <laughs> odd. Anyways, y'all say yours. <laughs> uh, I was, was just going to say, this is the type of movie that just us talking about it and hearing things that you guys picked up on that I didn't, I'm like, I, I already have to rewatch this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's there's there's layers to that. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. It definitely does benefit a rewatch. Um, um what, what I was just gonna one, just gonna mention one of my favorite moments in the movie. That the sequence where he's walking down the street and okay. imagining Birdman behind him talking about how they're gonna make a huge comeback and like make another movie and get rich, um, and he says something about they're gonna like shit their pants when they hear you scream or uh, like crow again or something, and mm-hmm. Michael Keaton just goes ah. <laughs> <laughs> if My we were doing, if we were doing traditional opening quotes, I had considered that one. <laughs> My name's Justin, and ah. God. <laughs> he just holds the face afterwards like he doesn't it's... say anything because Birdman is talking. He is it's perfect hilarious. in this movie. God, uh, I love Michael Keaton. Does he voice Birdman, like the Birdman voice as well? I think so. Uh, no, a gentleman named Benjamin Keynes. Oh. 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 Okay. So They're just a completely right different person. I figured mm-hmm. they would do it like with him doing the same voice, but he's like clearly trying to make his voice sound deeper. Yeah, or like doing the Batman thing. Yeah, yeah. That... That's an interesting choice. Hmm. Uh. Oh, um, just to mention the cast earlier, just or Stephanie clocked someone that I did not. The the homeless man shouting Macbeth on the streets mm-hmm. is uh Mr. Scheibel from the Queen's Gambit. No, nope. ah. I know him even without the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Which, what a dramatic performance. I know. You can't see him most of the time. You just hear someone yelling Macbeth dramatically to this beautiful string piece. Yeah, that was you really know. interesting. Um, and, of course, you know, the lines are supposed to be meta, you know, a, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. 
Um, pretty, pretty obvious that that's supposed to be, you know, the big meta thing for his life. But I was like, huh, uh, is New York City such an interesting place that random guys on the street are just kind of inanely shouting out, Ham- uh, not Hamlet, Macbeth, like, what? <laughs> But, uh, if those... not, let's make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's be the crazy guy in New York shouting Macbeth that you want to see in the world. <laughs> um... <laughs> also, I know a lot of people have uh, uh, their own feelings on if they like Zach Galifianakis or not. I do, uh, <laughs> but this is still my favorite performance of his, even though it's very small. But it's like it... it's the only time he's not doing his specific thing, right. which he does well and everything. But this is like. Oh, an aspect of Zach that you don't get to see. It felt like an uncharacteristically not Zach Galifianakis, Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, I, I liked him. Yeah. No, he was good. He was good. All of the supporting cast is. No, yeah, they good. were all really good. Um, speaking of the supporting cast, okay, so here's maybe the main thing that I don't quite get about the movie. Sock it to me. All right, so. The fact that, despite despite what we talked about before with the single shot thing and it being largely from um, Riggins' point of view, there are some scenes that he is not in, and I right. guess I have been kind of puzzling over the purpose of those scenes. It's not that I don't think they're good, because everything in this movie is, is good, like, <laughs> just on a surface level, like, it's shot well, it's acted well. Um, I guess I was just wondering what, why they are there. Like, what what do they contribute to the narrative since it is so focused on a single person? So, my, my no prize explanation for that uh, is, <laughs> I will use, I will use this one scene as an example. Um, when it follows uh, Naomi Watts' character after what happened to her on stage with Mike, uh follows her into the dressing room um and then andrea rice riceborough is that how you say that name yes that sounds familiar i don't remember if that's her yeah that yes yeah the woman that riggan might have gotten pregnant but right uh she follows uh naomi watts into the dressing room they have a conversation riggan comes in says what she says to her and then it stays um with the two women and I think her character's name is Laura gets upset and starts talking to uh, Naomi Watts' character about her relationship with Riggin. So anytime the camera leaves him, it's to build uh, the relationships he has with other people to give a fuller picture of him as a man. Then why do they make up? <laughs> that's, that's a separate scene. I don't know. That's a separate well, scene. That, that's I, a, that's I the same scene. Is it the same scene? That's yeah. See, that's I, the kind of thing I was trying to figure out. Like that, and like Sam and Mike. Like both of those characters, or all four of those characters, having these separate, like, I guess, romantic sexual relationships. I was, I, I don't know. I couldn't quite figure out what the point of that was. It, it I, is. You. It you is a way. It it feels like a way to make. Uh, all of these people around him seem real, so they're not just mirrors for him to be reflected in. That's yeah. a, that is a purpose they're serving, but they also are their own fleshed out characters. And I I kind of prefer it that way. If they were just kind of there to bounce off Riggin, and that was the entire purpose they were there, the movie wouldn't feel as alive as it does. 
Hmm. I'd buy that. See, I almost feel the opposite. I feel like with it being such so focused on a single person, I think I would buy it more if it was more transparent about all these characters are reflections of him or exist in relation to him. Because it feels, in a way, it feels very, uh, I don't know, like solipsistic, where it's like the whole world that the movie exists in. I don't know if that's the word for it or not. God forgive me. Uh, <laughs> the whole world exists as he experiences it. Like, that almost would make more sense to me than if it kind of, like... I don't want to say half-heartedly, because that sounds a little uncharitable, because the movie is so good. But if it only kind of sort of half-tried to flesh out the other characters. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, I feel like I would buy it more if it was more committed to just being entirely through his eyes. Um, because I feel like it's not quite enough to me to seem like it's an ensemble film. Like, it's really different characters on their different journeys. Mm-hmm. I don't know. that I haven't quite figured that one out yet, and I feel like I'd have to watch it at least one more time to really cement my feelings on it. It was just kind of an impression I got. Like, I feel like each of the other characters could have their own movie that would be very much like Birdman and just as interesting, honestly. But I don't feel like it quite got there. Mm. I, I would totally watch this film from like seven different perspectives. Just yeah. release seven cuts of the movie, follow a different <laughs> character in each cut. I will watch it. <laughs> oh no, absolutely. Like I do think the characters are very interesting. I just I don't know. Like, for instance, um probably the one that gets the least amount of development for all the scenes that she's in is um his girlfriend i guess like the movie it's not even clear like what their relationship is like obviously they've had a sexual relationship like and one could argue probably a romantic one too since she's so forthcoming about telling him that they might have a baby and yet that never feels like it goes anywhere it doesn't feel like there's any resolution to it like Pretty much the last actual conversation that they have is barely even a conversation. It's just her saying, oh, by the way, I'm not pregnant, so you don't have to worry about that, and then, like, slamming the door. And so, and he doesn't respond to that, so we don't ever see how he feels about it. I don't know. I feel like that it's just an example of, like, things that it feels like more could have been done with it, but it isn't, and that's what confuses me a little bit. It could also be read that he felt nothing about it because he's so wrapped up yeah in his own ego and what he has going on again this movie can be interpreted so many ways down to how it ends (laughs) oh yeah so do we want to go ahead and try to figure that one out (laughs) i i normally hate mystery boxes Mm. but i'm okay with this one does not bother me Hmm. Well, it's 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 ambiguous. I would say there's a difference between a mystery box kind of thing and ambiguity. A mystery box deliberately like poses mm. a question, like, "Hey, what's behind the curtain?" Whereas ambiguity is just like, "There is something behind the curtain, but we're not going to tell you what it is, so there might as well not be anything there." Um, and I I don't know. Um, I I do like. Uh, no, go ahead. I do like uh, so so a big uh, part of the mystery of the ending is uh, are all of the instances where he is shown having some sort of supernatural ability uh, in his head or not, 
And this second time around, I noticed they go through great lengths with the notable exceptions being him levitating at the beginning and what happens at the end uh, to explain every single supernatural quote unquote things thing that he does. Like when he's flying through the city, but then like the guy is chasing mm-hmm. him down for the cab fare. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few other things in the movie where you see him like do something with his head quote unquote but then mm. you it cuts to him like when he's trashing his room with his mind but then right, his then... friend comes in he's throwing yes. stuff and everything like that um so just just the way that for me that this time around it made me feel like the ending is like oh yeah he he did Oh, really? no, because there's every other no... time like justin said with the exception of him levitating in his room in the opening scene there's always some sort of interruption or explanation for his hallucinations well see i i don't know i the thing that makes me think or at least the thing that makes me doubt that he's dead at the end or that he killed himself is that for one thing he already um, for for story purposes, he already quote unquote killed himself just a few minutes earlier. Right. Like as in he clearly didn't care if he lived or died. He might as well have just tried to kill himself. We don't really know how intentional we okay, we don't know how much he was deliberately saying like I'm going to put an end to my life right now. But he pretty clearly tr- tried to or at least was okay with it happening. And yeah. so narratively, I feel like that has already kind of jumped that that hurdle if that makes sense like it's already for all intents and purposes of the story he has already killed himself and the fact that he survived means things have to be different now and that was the kind of vibe i got from the end of from that ending scene was that things were going to be different and so now that's not to say that i even think that it's literal that he jumped out the window i actually my personal interpretation is that he didn't um i if we're looking at all this on a super subjective meta level, the way I personally would interpret it is he did not even jump out the window. In his mind, he jumped out the window and flew, but he didn't really. He's still in the hospital bed, but he has hope for the future. Like, that would be my interpretation. I am having a thought. <laughs> That's always good. A rare occurrence, <laughs> <Yeah>. I know. <laughs> he gives a... When he, he is monologuing at his ex-wife... And tells a story about how he was on an airplane with George Clooney, and he was they were they went through some really bad turbulence, and everyone on the plane was afraid they were going to crash. And he was distraught by the fact that if he died in that plane crash, his daughter would see George Clooney's face on the front page and not mm-hmm. his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. That was all he needed was no, the notoriety before he died. He has attained that. Mm-hmm. He has made the front page. That's true. He has no further to go. He has nothing more to accomplish. He is happy. He is satisfied. He is fully prepared to throw himself out a window and die and be on the front page by himself, sans George Clooney. Hmm. See, that's right. That's why this movie is so many, so many possible. And I feel like that's quite deliberate. Like, you have to think that there is not meant to be a single interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, no. And he won't, like, the director won't even give a no. uh, an official explanation. He's like, no, like, you guys talk about it. Figure it out. No, the uh, point is the ambiguity. The point is what you bring to it personally with your interpretation. I'm choosing to believe that he did jump, 
but he's not high up uh, enough in the building for it to kill him, so he's just running around chasing those birds that he saw, and that's why Sam looks up, because she's like, oh, birds! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me go my dad having a good time. See, I like that's how we each had a, a very different interpretation of that. I feel like that is, that's probably what the Mr. director... Mr. Inarichi would yeah, be proud. That's, he probably had to have intended that, you know? Um... um. But I like that. I like an ambiguous ending as long as it's justified by the text. Like, yes. and I feel that it is justified. Mm-hmm. And it Absolutely. you could, it shows just like the complexity of the character that you could easily see it going either way. And I don't know. I kind of like that. Yeah. I think I only have like one other thought that I've been holding on to. It's totally unimportant. Okay. I agree with Stephanie that I question the purpose of the two female actresses making out scene. As as much as it's appreciated, and it definitely but, is. But I love the way Naomi Watts says, do it again. I know. <laughs> <Girl>. <laughs> yes. See, well, and that, yeah, it's just, it just goes to show you, like, I would love to see the lives of these other characters, which is mad props to the director and the actors. I mean, just the fact that the other characters are so interesting and you would like to see their lives. Like, I, I, I don't know how well it fits into this movie, but I would definitely watch other movies about it. Before we move on to the break, I did have one uh, thing I wanted to talk about, um, and... It's kind of a lot because it's a whole aspect of what the film is trying to say that we didn't touch on. So can I rapid fire a couple points? Yeah. Uh, and then you guys rebuttal? Okay. Uh, so this film obviously has a lot to say about the state of popular cinema uh, mm. from the 2010s to now, or when it was made, which was 2014, only four years, uh, in that... It seems, it could be read that this is a complete uh, condemnation of things like the MCU, mm-hmm. uh, that it comes off very angry and bitter towards those things. Um, but I also think, uh, I do think it is saying that to a degree. Um, I think that it is making the point that there isn't room uh, for more uh, quote-unquote artistic voices in cinema anymore because it's kind of being capitalized by the blockbuster machine Mm -hmm. uh, which is absolutely true but i also think it's saying that we shouldn't looking at you martin scorsese again i love you but i disagree with you uh we shouldn't take these filmmakers and these actors and pigeonhole them into this is the only thing that they can do because i also think it is making that point uh and i also think it is making the point that art is art doesn't matter if it's popcorn fuel or if it is a brand new heartfelt broadway play art is being made for the sake of art Hmm. and i think that is wonderful Uh, because if you look at the end riggan literally gives his blood almost his life for this play and then what happens as soon as the audience is done clapping you get uh the drum line then you get bumblebee punching iron man it's all on the same stage it's all treated the same with the same celebration hmm. Hmm. imagine that i i i walk, i consumed a piece of film and then didn't engage with it at all because that, that last sequence when like the drumline guys and the the fake spider-man and the fake bumblebee are on stage dancing about and like fighting each other i'm just like Huh. I was trying to understand <laughs> that too. I didn't completely. Justin actually asserted meaning to it. Wow. I see. <laughs> that yep, was... that... No, we need that. We need that. 
Um, that was my read. I could be like just wildly no, misinterpreting. Just, even it, if you are, but... any read is better than my non-read. <laughs> yeah, I, like... <laughs> any read is better than no read. Um, yeah, it, it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, to me, it did not feel like it was condemning necessarily blockbustery Hollywood stuff. If anything, it felt more on the side of people who had been part of that and not on the side of people who who see that as lesser um i don't know it it does kind of exist in that between space merely by virtue of the main character having come from that environment but Mm -hmm. trying to enter a different one and Mm -hmm. not really wanting to do that same thing anymore it's it's it can exist in both spaces it can be saying you know people enjoy these things but maybe ultimately they might not be good for the future of film um but also and also like you know we shouldn't pigeonhole these the people who do it but also like the people opiate of opiate of the masses right like not everyone can go to new york and see theater on broadway every fucking night well perhaps it was also trying to point out that it's pointless to have a polarity between these things like the way you have your supposedly your theoretically super artsy super meaningful super avant-garde broadway new york theater and then you have your trashy popcorn opiate of the masses hollywood blockbuster stuff like maybe it is saying that that there can be there is space between those things in which art can exist and that's kind of where Riggan has to exist is because he he comes from one he desires the other and he can't ever completely be one or the other um and maybe that is that shows him to be a a true artist because he is someone who you know is able to be adaptive he is able to be part of these you know uh, more bombastic less <laughs> less cerebral uh film outputs and also is able to enter the world of you know the esoteric theater uh, i don't know and i <laughs> once again it comes back to this movie having a lot of interpretations but yes i would say that it's kind of uh maybe perhaps arguing for uh the a certain leniency maybe a certain broadening of the concept of art and who is an artist and who can be an artist i don't know um which the, you're we're back to ratatouille yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not anyone can make great art but great art can come from anywhere <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, it's ratatouille all the way down, boys. Yeah, which I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty defensive of Martin Scorsese, despite having not watched many of his films, <laughs> and despite being someone who loves Marvel. But I also think a lot of people kind of took what he said and ran with it in the wrong direction, maybe. Oh no, I didn't mean to put him up as like the poster boy <laughs> yeah. for like 
a horrible opinion. Yep. It's just he had the most popular right. takes. So. That whole discourse <laughs> right. was kind of inflated. Look, when, when old men yes, are yelling absolutely. at clouds, sometimes we should just let them yell at clouds, <laughs> you know? <laughs> They're there, Marty. Like... Not to say that his opinion doesn't matter as one of the most like no. beloved filmmakers of all time. It's just no, a, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have to listen to it if you don't want. Right, um, and it's, I mean, and different people have different definitions of what cinema is or perhaps what theater is because, I mean, unfortunately, like, we, I guess it's unfortunate, I mean, it's not necessarily unfortunate, but, like, we, we gain different things from the experience. Like, I might say that something like, <laughs> I don't know, that something like the fucking Minions movies aren't cinema to me. And yet, to some people, they are. So who am I to say what fucking is and what isn't? I, it, it, that's Maybe that's the whole point, is you can't put a label, there's that word again, on it, because, you know, art comes from the artist. Art is consumed by the consumers of art, and everyone has a different take on it, the makers and the consumers. And so it, it really can be anything. There you go. <laughs> My answer is... Nothing and somehow everything. <laughs> but you met the word, word requirement for your short response answer. So. Wow, thank you, Caleb. Beautiful. Jesus Beautiful. Christ. <laughs> so I guess my last uh, half baked metaphor I want to leave this half of the podcast with before we hop over is uh, art is a swimming pool with a shallow end and a deep end. An artist should be able to splash around in the shallow end or swim in the deep end as long as they're committed to what they're doing. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> That's beautiful, Justin. And with that, we'll be with you guys after the break. <laughs> Down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. So 1917. <laughs> the last movie Boy. I saw in theaters before the pandemic. I know. And what a movie to that go out different. on. Same here. Really? Yes. So it, it, we might as well uh, experience <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I went into this one knowing the gimmick. The first time I saw it, I, I was really excited. But Stephanie, due to reasons, could not go with me. Um... So I got every male in my extended family to go with me pretty much. A real dude's my, rock moment. I, my, my dad, my brother, and my cousin all uh, went to go see this movie with me. And I wasn't... It was a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was like the day of, and I said, I'm going to see this movie tonight if you guys want to tag along. Because like my family, with the exception of my brother, aren't uh, film people. Cinephiles. Um, they're not cinephiles, so this wasn't really something I expected them to get anything out of. Um, but when we got to the end of it, and this movie, like when it finally ended, I I I, I let out a breath I didn't realize I was holding. <laughs> Fanfic, <And>, Caleb. <laughs> and and every single one of them was like, "Wow." Yeah. Like, yeah. And they all loved it, which is a testament to this movie that, like, people who generally don't really like, quote unquote, film, um, <laughs> were like, wow, that was, that was really good. Mm. 
And then that was enough to convince mm-hmm. Stephanie to go see it with me. Yeah, I I will be completely honest, and I'm kind of ashamed to say this, but when I first heard about it, I was not enthused. I was like, oh, cool, okay, a war movie, and oh boy, it's all one shot. Well, that sounds fun. Um, but then, but the, the reviews. It, okay, so I'm not someone who super enjoys that kind of movie. At best, I find war movies really depressing and kind of distressing you know like um and i ha- i haven't watched a lot of them which is by choice i'm sure i will at some point at least the good ones um and you know i i had that initial reaction of like this is a dude movie which i apologize for i am unlearning that 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 concept i it is extremely reductive and not something i want to be associated with anyways so I ended up going with Caleb uh, the second time he saw it, and I was just completely transfixed in a way that I have rarely been with even movies that I have seen, like, in the cinema. Um, it It's like... I mean, it is in large part due to the single-shot thing that it, it is so riveting, but just everything else, too, is just so good... I think I, I would have been probably just as uh, just as enchanted by it otherwise. Um, but by the end, I mean, I am notably someone who doesn't cry a lot at movies or TV or whatever. I have done it maybe four or five times in my life. And most of those have been in the past few years because I'm getting softer as I get older, I guess. <laughs> um but um, at the end, it was just like a single manly tear <laughs> rolled down my face. It is, I I was really blown away, and I'm I'm glad that was the the last movie I saw in theaters. And this movie really does benefit from being seen in a theater. Oh oh like, yes, I don't Absolutely. always say that, yes. but seeing this one in a theater like is an experience. I'm so glad I got to do that. Like I I've rewatched it twice since then, like not in theaters, like at home, which I definitely still enjoyed. But I'm so glad I got to have that initial experience of being in the theater because that was something. Um, <laughs> Justin, you what, what about you? Uh, so same. Uh, last movie i saw before uh the world went crazy um (laughs) and uh i our audience knows uh but in case this is your first time uh tuning in i cry so easy (laughs) i'm a big old big old crybaby so i was well what was interesting was i i went with three other people to see this movie and we were um there was only like maybe two or three other people in the theater besides us because we went the last showing of the night. Uh, so when the credits start rolling, there is, it felt like a few minutes, it was probably only a few seconds of silence where there was nothing but like sniffling <laughs> before we even said anything. Uh, this movie is beautiful, um, and I I knew the gimmick going in as well. I am a huge Roger Deakins stan. Oh, so yes. is Stephanie. I a lot what of... a king! Stephanie, the the triad. Yeah. We'll talk about the trio <laughs> the, in a minute. Yeah, the triad. <laughs> uh, this movie is uh, like it really. Is. So I had seen so many of the like behind the scenes uh, videos, which if you guys haven't watched them yet, 
please go do it. Just the way that there are, like, vehicles going and they're passing off the camera with all these different cranes and just, like, these uh, <laughs> these cameramen, like, running and handing each other the camera as the actors are just doing their thing. It is a ballet of filmmaking, and it is incredible. It's beautiful. Um, I do want to see that. Yeah. So anyway, that's my entire thoughts on the movie. Go watch it. It's yeah. beautiful, amazing. <laughs> I'll see you next week. Yeah. No, I. It's okay. We'll talk about the trio first. Leading into that, the golden crab. Stephanie. I'm surprised. I'm honestly surprised she didn't want to go see this movie just because of who worked on it. I didn't really know. I guess she I didn't know really until the Oscars happened, yeah. or until she went and saw the movie. Yeah. I had no opinion on it, but see if. So if if something is World War One, I, I am there. I still haven't seen it, but I desperately want to see. They will not grow old. In is so it much de- as is it probably be depressing? World War One stands. Yes, yeah, yeah. In so much. I'll see, watch most, it with you, buddy. Most people are World War Two stands. I I walk a different path. Oh, World War One is I'm just so War. fucking tragic. It is. Like it, mm-hmm. the more you it's... learn about it, the fucking sadder it is. Like and yeah. yet so much was going on at the time. So many like new things were happening i I don't Mm -hmm. know it i listened to a little bit of the hardcore history episodes (laughs) with caleb and i was just like almost in tears just listening to a few episodes yeah you want to hear some good shit listen to dan carlin's six-part series on hardcore history about world war one oh my god and i think this movie (laughs) we're jumping all over the place here good god Um, that's fine this movie really captures the kind of the tragedy of it like the the way the whole the whole plot hinges not on who wins the war or on these big ideological battles but on just saving a, f- a few men basically mm-hmm. because that's like that's the scale at which it was fight they were fighting was that like so many people were dying like they were basically just throwing lives on they were on, literally the fire, just you know? throwing bodies into the machinery and grinding them up to exchange right. a couple of yards of land at a time right. for months on end. Which is why it seems so fitting that the whole, the, the stakes of the film hinge on saving like a single, what, I don't know the technical term. Battalion? A single battalion, yes. <laughs> um, but, um, the, that 16, group of guys over there. 16,000 yeah. <laughs> men. Which is, it's, <laughs> that's not nothing. Like, to be fair, that is a, a big number. It just, weirdly seems small in the scope of the sheer amount of lives no that were you're lost right in the war. world war one decimated the male population of europe like it, it, it's to an insane degree um and i it feels like we don't know that much about it because i guess we haven't gotten the secondhand so accounts as much it was a hundred years ago yeah like my great-grandfather who i knew was in world war Two when like told us stories about it yeah <sighs> World War One is an entire one or two generations removed from that. But just the effect that that has to have on, like, a culture or, like, uh, you know, on, like, a country or a continent, like, to lose that much of the population, it's, yeah. it's insane. Like, it's unfathomable. And I feel like I do like how this movie kind of captures those stakes. Like, it is... In a way, it is one man's journey, but it you definitely get the feeling of, like, that sense of, of loss or the potential for loss of yeah. life. Uh, especially that, the like, the I, I'm going to call it the second scene when they're wandering through no man's land 
which, ah, mm-hmm. uh, yes, it, like so. Oh, first, past the dead horses, then the 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 way the men just casually talk about death, like you know, past the bowing chap. Um, yeah, who's was, like a body, like a, stuck a on man the barbed stuck wire in the barbed fences. wire. Yeah, um, talking about don't fall into the craters; they're deeper than they look. Like yes, they were like these. these cr- th- this and the oh my god, the stumps of trees left around. This used to be forest, wooded area. Now it's nothing but craters, and it looks like the surface of a foreign planet. Um, and yeah, the craters are full that's of. Wild. They're they're deep enough for you to drown in and not get out, but you can't drink the water because of the 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 chemicals and the poisons that were used. And it's just it, the, the death, like literally wading through bodies. My man sits down after he cuts his hand on barbed wire oh God, and accidentally plunges his hand through a dead man's chest cavity. They yeah. are surrounded oh. by death. It uh. is it permeates everything, and they do such a good job of like mm. making sure you, as the audience, know how awful this was. Death in- infecting the wound that almost feels like a yeah. like a portentous thing, like. The, the small wound mm. can become something something more, something much more dangerous. And yet the way he reacts to it is almost just like, well, this Guess might as this, well happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. right, because it's this, an inconvenience more than it is a death yeah. sentence. Yes, yeah. because this man, my man uh, Schofield, literally went through the Battle of the Somme, okay? Like, yeah, you want to talk about... like Famously, one of the worst battles of World War One. he went through it and came out alive, and now he's still having to serve. Like, yeah. a man who's been so broken that he was sad to go home because he knew he couldn't stay. Yeah, Ugh. while we're jumping all over the place, we might as well talk about that. I thought it was interesting how this character who... I'm not sure how old George McKay is, but the uh, the the character seemed quite young. or at, Maybe late 20s. Yeah, yeah at most. And, and it was interesting how he almost had this attitude of, like, an older person like he just seemed so weary of it all whereas it like doesn't he has long. seen some shit yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has served multiple tours at this point because like you couldn't get out there right. was no going home there was either the war ended or you died mm-hmm. and it Ugh. it's odd because his dynamic with um with uh blake yes um it's like they're clearly not very far apart in age, like maybe a few years, and mm-hmm. yet he seems so much older than him in the way he acts because Blake is so like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, yeah. sort of, and is it's so like I'm gonna go fight the bad Older brother, guys, and, younger yeah. brother, right? You're right. Which is why part of why it's so tragic when Blake dies because he feels like the the young and the hopeful, whereas Schofield feels very much like I just want this to be over. I've seen too much already. Right. He's like, why? It, it should have been me. Right. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. And you Man, that sense. Go for it. That was me. I was sighing. I was sighing. That was a. <laughs> uh, no, say your piece, please. Scared the, sh- scared the shit out of me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Blake's death uh, was the most. And keep in mind how much of the, like, uh, marketing and like behind the scenes stuff I watched before watching the movie, Blake's death was one of the most rug being pulled out from yep. under me moments in cinema that I have ever mm-hmm. seen. It hit me like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. and it made me cry. Pour one out for my mans. Because <laughs> he, he feels almost like the main Ugh. character. Because no, he's he the does. one who is he given the like mission. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he picked Schofield to go along with him. He, he is the one whose brother is in the battalion that needs to be saved. You know? Right. And it it's like I was okay, so 
Everyone knows I'm a Campbellian bitch. I love Ooh. the hero's journey. I <laughs> This movie reads as very hero's journey to me. Um, and part of what I was thinking about was how, if you view it through that kind of lens of the hero's journey, then Blake almost had to die because he was the one who so enthusiastically accepted the mission. And he he did not have the refusal of the call in, in a way that Schofield right. had. Um, so it's almost like there wasn't as much growth for him to go through over the course of the movie. So it makes sense that he was the one that died. And that raised the stakes for Schofield to then either abandon it or carry on. And it, it speaks to his character because he didn't have the personal stakes that, um, that Blake did. And so yeah. in a way it was like, that was kind of a moment of truth for him was that passing of the 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 baton or the bayonet or whatever <laughs> um and that he it wasn't his brother that was at risk and yet he was taking that on for the sake of his friend and for the the greater good so um that felt very very hero's journey to me um especially most importantly because he really didn't want to be there and he like yeah. expresses he specifically says it so after yeah. they get out of the mind like, why did you pick me so in a weird well, way it's we're... like blake was like the mentor that like was like hey i have a mission for you and i that this is your your job now this is who you have to become even though he was younger like it was like he was giving him that that call to adventure uh, I, I also think, like, I mean, obviously all of that was very intentional, but we are just so trained uh, in the disnification of storytelling that the, of course, the bright-eyed, plucky uh, young soldier is going to, like, accept the mission, and then he's going to learn how harsh the world is, but then he's going to overcome it, and everything's going to be <laughs> fine, and this movie's like, hey, no, he war is it. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, and see, that's interesting now that you say that about the learning how terrible the world is. So it's interesting how we have here a protagonist who, despite how young he is, does know how terrible the world is. And yet it's almost like a reversal of that where he has to learn that there is hope and that you can make a difference. So maybe in some ways the antithesis of a lot of war movies in that this is someone who already knows that things are terrible and has to learn to to find hope to carry on non nonetheless right to keep to, going to, to chin up and to keep calm and carry on <laughs> pip, pip, cheerio, something, something. <laughs> yes um so i think that was very interesting especially like i said for such a young character to make it felt very i don't know very uh life affirming very redemptive in mm. its own way yes um <laughs> i mentioned the trio Hmm. About 15 minutes yes. ago. <laughs> if you recall. <laughs> Stephanie, would you care to name the triad, the golden triad Okay, for we us? got Sam Mendes directing, we got Roger Deakins on Boom. cinematography, and we got my man's Thomas Newman doing the score. <laughs> Justin, you looked like you're trying to pause uh, Oh, no, I was No, he I was, was giving... going, hell yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was saying testify. <laughs> testify. Um... We're going to leave that in. Yeah, just <laughs> Justin was saying earlier, I, I had a thought that I'd, I'd like to get out before we move on. Justin said that after the movie ended, they were just, everyone was just kind of sitting in their seats, like sniffling for a while. <laughs> Thomas Newman writes a score 
that just makes and makes you want to sit in your seat mm. and just like sit with that moment. And he happens to work on movies that also end in ways that you just want to sit there yes, and taste. like hold on to that moment yes. for a minute and just yes. sit with it. Yes. You know, some movies credits roll. You're like, I'm good to go. Yeah. But you know, like. Uh, Thomas Newman worked on Shawshank Redemption huh. and 1917, and when those movies ends, you just kind of, you just gotta fucking sit there for a sit. minute. Yeah, because like the score's not done. You ride that out for a while. Yeah, yeah. you ride that out because <laughs> the song is only like halfway through when the movie ends, and you're just like, you need to sit with it, you know? It's, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's kind of the filmmaking, the story, the the soundtrack, all working in synthesis to kind of keep that feeling very alive in your brain. Like, when you think of the ending of Shawshank, it's such a great ending because it feels very open-ended and yet very satisfying, which yes. is a, sometimes a difficult thing for a movie to achieve. It it feels like you don't have all the answers and you don't know what's going to happen, and yet it feels like you're in a good place and that good things will happen. Right. It gives you the answers you need, but not not necessarily the ones you want. Right. And, and same yeah. thing with 1917. Like, we don't know what's going to happen with Schofield. We, we don't know what's going to happen to him after this, and yet you feel so at peace, like, because he has completed his mission. And it feels... There is such a profound sense of hope, and I think that is especially conveyed by the fact that he looks at those pictures... And it's like, maybe he really will get to go back, you know, and for good this time. Um, it's right. And <laughs> I know, I know. That's what the waterworks come on, man. <laughs> Actually, before that, I start crying before that. Let's be real. Um, <laughs> I oh the fact that this is this, I don't. There's not much to discuss about this, but just the fact that both characters begin and end their roles in the movie in the exact same positions. The with the way that they're both sleeping and their that opening shot is yeah. how they both end. It feels um, quite like poor, when, portentous. When Blake dies and he is left, he is laying on his pack the exact same way he was sleeping. Mm-hmm. Schofield was sleeping, leaning against a tree at the beginning of the movie, and he closes his eyes, leaning against a tree at the very end. Right. Yeah. It's, that... it's, it's not. There's you could say some a little bit about that, but I feel like that's just one of those things you point out as a fact, and you're just like, oh, that's really satisfying, and well, then just kind of move on. Lying mm. down as a representation of eternal sleep, sitting up as perhaps a representation of having to get up the and Watchmen. continue the journey. Yeah, someone watching. Uh, you know, it's it's little things like staging that might mean everything or might mean nothing, but it it is noticeable for sure. Um. Anyways, yeah, the the triad uh, is really bringing it in this <laughs> film. Um, <laughs> other uh, other films with this uh, triad, uh, you've got American Beauty, uh, Revolutionary Road, uh, some other ones. Someone that, with Tom Hanks. Yeah. Oh, uh, Road to Perdition. Is that also? I'm pretty sure. I could be misremembering uh, some things here, but I'm pretty. I know it. Hmm? Let's see. Uh... Uh, Road to Perdition does not have Roger Deakins. Ah, and it, it feels like it does, which is the funny Roger, thing. Okay. Okay, yeah, this yeah. is this is definitely a movie where the cinematographer is like as important, if not potentially more important than the director. Yeah, right. Oh, very cinematography mm-hmm. heavy um, film. Not just in the way that we're oh, setting God, up it's... shots that are just gorgeous to look at, yeah. which they are. But also, you know, just figuring out the logistics of making this real. Okay, while we're talking about the cinematography for a second, <laughs> the when 
after Schofield is knocked unconscious and he leaves the building he was in and walks into the ruins of Akust at night, lit by the light of flares arcing across the sky, causing the shadows to shrink and lengthen and grow and just change constantly, has to be is probably the most beautiful and affecting thing I have seen in a movie theater. Yeah. It's a very we're not in Kansas anymore moment. Yes. It very (laughs) much feels like the the down to Gehenna part, you know, he has yes, he has entered he has entered the netherworld now. You know, the, Ooh, the, it's on fire. I like and it. It's in the distance. It's <laughs> oh, totally unearthly. Right. It's hellish. It's surrealistic. It's supernatural. Yeah. Um. Yes, and it's odd because it's like it's very beautiful, and the score kind of reinforces that. And yes, oh, it's the score it's in also this movie. Terrifying. The score and the sound design. Yeah. Oh, like the, 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 it rises perfectly with the action, and some sometimes there's no sound at all, and it's just. Or when I say no sound, I mean there's no score, no music. It's just the natural sounds, like 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 when Schofield finally makes it out of the river after crawling over bodies to get out of the river, and he ends up on the on the, the tears, on the shore, the and there's nothing but the sound of the wind through the trees, <sighs> and the first sound of bird song and and the first sign of green in this entire movie it's it's, it's, he is he has gone down to hell and come out the other side you know he it's uh. here's here's what i'm gonna need you to do i'm gonna need you to take this movie i'm gonna need you to turn it into a jar of peanut butter and i'm gonna need you to just like spoon feed it to me (laughs) until i stop crying Oh yeah. Also, um, the sound design. Um, I particularly noticed it in the No Man's Land sequence. I noticed how uh, I guess like the sound design is so hushed and tense and like like almost it's so precise right. and subtle. And it feels it feels like there's like a blanket over it, like where it's this own little terrible little world. And it's got just like this eerie quietness, and it's just like the 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 sound or the lack of sound of death. Like it's so it's so words. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It it really hits. That's the way I would put it. (laughs) It's so hard for me to talk about this movie without just being like. You remember when, like, he's down there and the French woman and the baby, oh and it, like, also made me we cry. We haven't even And there's, like, that nothing yet. but the sound of, like, the fire crackling. And, like, when he's uh-huh. singing the song to the child, and it's there's it's that's, just dead that's, silence. That's it's one like, of my favorite scenes in the film. I we haven't even got... Oh, no. We're all over the place. We're all over the place. It's, it's, okay, it's fine. Okay. It doesn't matter. Um, That one is so good. I mean, your hero's journey, it's like the... um. The encounter with the feminine or with the goddess, like, that's a stage in the hero's journey, which is, like, uncharitably would be called woman as temptress, but it's not what's going on here. But uh, symbolically, it is what's going on, because it's, like... Um, she's She still tempts him to stay. Yes, she still asks him to stay, and it kind of represents, like, that feeling of, like, safety, security, like... Uh, of, of being home, you know, of having a family. And 
I think it must be quite intentional that it's like a a woman and a baby. It very much represents like that mm-hmm. idea of a family. And <laughs> even though <laughs> it's it's all very sad, like even though she admits she doesn't know who the baby is or like who her parents are, but it's kind of like that that found family that has to come together in times of war because everything else has been like ripped apart. So it almost feels like a natural place for him to be uh, because it's all just people having to come together in seemingly unnatural ways during, during a time that's this chaotic and violent. And Uh, um, especially for how like, the scene that he just escaped, as Caleb was saying, is a nightmarish hellscape. Mm-hmm. And you know that is happening outside, but for some reason, hiding underground with this woman and this baby, with all of that going on, still feels calm yeah. and comfortable. And the danger is literally right there. <laughs> Let's, but it... right. <laughs> Let's talk about the pacing for a second. Yeah. Is the pacing Ugh. in this movie, the ups and the downs, <laughs> it doles them out so nicely. Yeah. No, you know, it really does. There's this intense moment where he's in this sniper fight and he's knocked unconscious and you think he might be dead. You don't know. And he wakes up and then he's running for his life again. And then whew, pause for a moment. It's a little tense at first because, you know, we don't know who this woman is. She doesn't know who he is. And everything's nice and calm. We have this nice, quiet moment. But then, you know, duty still calls. And he has to get right back to it. And we have that whole sequence where he's running through the town. He has to kill the German. He has to run from more of them. He almost drowns in the river. He has to crawl over a bunch of bodies. And he comes out on the other side. And then, quiet. Yeah. Wind through the trees. Song, someone singing softly on the wind. You know, yeah. the, the pacing is the just moments so... of tension and respite feel very deliberate. Yes, um, and it's I don't know it. I can't really describe why I think this, but the whole thing reads very like Arthurian to me, almost uh, perhaps mm. as an extension of the hero's journey. But it feels very much like knight on quest kind of thing mm-hmm. with like your road yeah. of trials, your woman as temptress, your like magical things happening like even the 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 singing like when he emerges from the river and like is like walking through the trees and hears like a distance a distant voice singing it it feels very like something that would happen in a in a fairy tale or or yeah like tolkien or something it does feel very tolkien-esque right which is interesting for such a movie that's like so grounded and like based in like real life events it has this oddly magical quality which i think really elevates the film um and elevates it to something that's not just like a representation of the the terrible things that really happened but also kind of giving it this almost mythic quality you you want to talk about a movie that makes me confront my own mortality <laughs> like i'm sorry every, every time we get to the sequence where the boy is singing I'm only going over Jordan. I have an existential <laughs> crisis. Oh, God. Okay? <laughs> Un- like, from the moment you hear him singing yeah. that entire scene until the song ends and they start clapping and it's back to the, you know, the soldiers wondering who Schofield is. I am I am having an existential crisis. It's, okay? <laughs> like- it's trance-like. It's... <laughs> Yeah, it feels like an almost religious experience, like like a 
like sitting in a church, like hearing someone sing it. And also the way that like, just the whole way it's structured is so, uh, I don't want to use a cheesy word like magical, but everything feels very symbolic, you know? Like, emerging from the river, the river of death, the river sticks, like, crawling over the dead bodies, like, coming through the trees, you know, you hear the singer, he comes and he sits down, and then there's this, the camera pans, like, from the, the boy, I mean, young man, whatever, <laughs> from him singing to over the, the crowd, and what strikes me every time I watch it is how young everyone looks, mm-hmm. like, there's all these, mm-hmm. you know, seeing them from the behind, they look like, you know, hardened soldiers. But you see them from the front, and it looks like a high school group photo. Like, yep. like it, it's just, like, very young boys. Like, and you pan over each of their faces, like, listening to the singer, and it finally, like, ends on Schofield's face. And you see that he looks just as young as every other boy in the shot. And it's <laughs> it's just an incredibly sobering moment because it's you know the thing Caleb said about having to confront one's own mortality it's like every single very young person here having to confront their own mortality and having to come to terms with something that in a right state of the world (laughs) no one their age should have to and it's (laughs) knowing that they could be blown to pieces or oh, within the hour. Or like, yeah. lay dying for days on end in a crater where your friends can't come rescue you. Yeah, exactly. I... <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it hits on a very, a very particular level that I guess people like us probably could only begin to guess at. Uh, fortunately. Guys. It... Guys, I need to see someone slip on a banana peel soon, or I'm not gonna be okay. You need to go watch some Buster Keaton or some Charlie <laughs> Chaplin. Oh my god. Maybe some Three Stooges if you're feeling froggy. Oh my god. Um, no, it's <laughs> we, we can we can shift gears for a second. Okay. I'll address my only negative opinion or feeling about the movie. Ooh, spicy. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to call them celebrity cameos. (laughs) I think one of the strengths of this movie is that its two main characters are played by relative unknowns. By that, I mean Mm. unknown to Americans, probably. (laughs) Um, Um, The Blake kid was in Game of Thrones. Yeah, and so was his brother, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Um, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. Um... (laughs) The first one being, I don't remember his name. He was in Sherlock. He was the sexy priest in Fleabag. Oh, I don't know his name. That one doesn't bother me as much because we're not as invested yet. We haven't gotten serious. His is just a little fun, you know? Yeah, I do like his character. I do. I like him a lot. But as soon as, after Blake dies, he's sitting there, Schofield is sitting there mourning Blake. And this dude shows up, and you're like, oh, hey, it's Mark Strong. Like, that's the that's the <laughs> dude from the Sherlock Holmes movies, you know? Oh, and then the, the oh, there's another one before that. Who plays the general? Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch? No, 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 no. He's the colonel. Oh, Colin Firth? Colin Firth. I don't know. I don't know. That ranks. one's also not as bad, because like I said, that's before we get totally emotionally invested. 
So what you really the have a problem one, with is Benedict Cumberbatch. The worst one <laughs> is Benedict Cumberbatch, hands down. <laughs> because we're in this, we're, we've, we're so emotionally invested in Schofield's journey. He goes through all of this. The score is pounding his He's racing to get to the end to save the lives of 16,000 men. And then, boom, you're like, oh, hey, there's Benedict Cumberbatch. There's Doctor Strange. There's Sherlock. You know, like, it's so... Benedict Cumberbatch is not a chameleon, all right? He is not a Gary Oldman. He is one of those actors that you see him and you're like, hey, that's Benedict Cumberbatch. That's the guy from The Thing. He cannot blend in. He is too much himself. He sounds like himself at all times. Mm. His voice, he is the same person in everything. I'm sorry. I just, the moment you run into Benedict Cumberbatch in this movie, I get pulled all the way out of it. Like, I love this movie, and it gets me so invested, and it brings tears to my eyes. But then as soon as he shows up, I'm just like, whoa. Oh, right. I'm watching a movie. Mm. I... Uh. Justin, you go first. I'm sorry for this sudden kidney pain you're feeling, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. It's my fault. It's cute. Uh, it, I didn't have that problem uh, only because, um, like, like Rob Stark is in this movie, Richard Madden, yep. uh, Andrew Scott, that's the name you're looking for. It's like, you. oh, that's Moriarty. Like, it, it, so I had already had a few moments like that, so... It wasn't all saved for one big slap in the face via Cumberbatch. <laughs> well, see, I knew Colin Firth and Andrew Scott, but like I said, those two don't affect me as much because that's really before you're emotionally invested. You know, that's before any of the serious shit happens. Mark Strong is a pretty is a, is a, is a transgression. Benedict Cumberbatch is a major sin. That is not the point in the movie he should have been used. <laughs> transgression. Oh God. Um, I see. I don't. I don't really feel that way because I think that, on sort of like a meta level, I think it kind of makes sense that like the higher ranking officers are played by these better known people because it feels like it almost. It to me, it kind of inspires in the audience that feeling of like, oh, these are people that we should be paying attention to, like mm-hmm. which feels true to the situation. Uh, I don't know. I like. I definitely understand what Caleb's saying. I guess it just doesn't bother me. I see it in a very different way. Maybe. I, I can. I, I'm with Stephanie. I can see the argument, but it didn't bother me at all. It's not like they slapped John Cleese in there. <laughs> they <laughs> might as well have. Honestly, to to me, having Benedict Cumberbatch in that role is as bad as just throwing John Cleese in there. Like, Colin Firth fits in pretty well in the beginning, right? I think he can do that much better. It's just, God, it's not, this isn't a Harry Potter movie, right? Like, it's a, oh, there's Alan Rickman. Oh, that's Richard Harris. Oh, isn't that that other famous British guy? No. Like, oh my God. Like, literally, this movie would would be a 10 out of 10 perfect movie. Don't need to change anything else if they had had someone else play the, the colonel in the last scene. See, I guess that makes it make sense to why I think this movie is perfect, because I don't see that no, as a problem. No, I think problem, this movie is so. damn near perfect. <laughs> Except Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh my god. Oh my god, this was the banana peel. <laughs> <laughs> we just need a little dunking on Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch to, to hey, make Hey, I love day. Mark Strong. Okay. 
<laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch doesn't even care about Uh, come on. I think and I think that's our cold open. Uh, <laughs> hey, I love Mark Strong. But, um, no, I... See, this is the kind of movie that, like, were it a lesser movie, I might dunk on it for, I don't know, not having a lot of women in it or something. But I feel like that feels very, very intentional in, like, a good way. Like... See, I'm someone who generally, if the cast of a movie is almost entirely men, I'm not as interested, but there are exceptions that prove the rule almost, like um, Shawshank Redemption. Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry Men, this movie, like Lord of the Rings or something, uh, in that it feels like the choice to have only men feels very deliberate and feels kind of true to that environment, I guess. And, like, the fact that it is such a masculine environment feels, like, partially the point. Like, in this movie, the only female characters, the woman and the baby, feels very deliberate because it feels like that is specifically deliberately designated as a feminine space in a positive way in to which, like, the, the main character wants to stay there on some level because it feels safer. And he wants to protect it. Right. He, like, yeah, he feels like, and you kind of see that in a really, like, sweet moment, like, where he gives the milk that he found to the baby because she can't, like, (laughs) she can't eat, like, whatever other shit they have lying around. So there's kind of a ticking clock on that, like... You know, like, the woman can eat whatever, but the baby, like, what is she going to eat? Like, pretty much just milk. Like, and and so, yeah, so it feels like <laughs> deploying the female character. Uh, Hit the big red button. <laughs> Deploy female character. Now. <laughs> uh, deployed domestic bliss. Um, it feels rather, <laughs> rather deliberate, which I, I think it is good. Um, and, you know, like... Like, also, you know, with, like, the Shawshank Redemption or Twelve Angry Men, which I hope we will at some point talk about on here because, wow, what a great movie. Um, But it feels like the fact that these spaces are so very male feels, first of all, very deliberate. Like, it feels very much like this is a masculine space with all the, <laughs> the downsides that come along with that that have to be reckoned with. And also the fact that they have a real emotional core and aren't just, like, machismo, you know, but feel very much like this is a space in which, you know, men are kind of left to their own devices, God help them, <laughs> um, and, and have to find, you know, have to find something worth worth living for within that i guess like they have to find emotional bonds within like the absence of women and the absence of societally constructed softer emotions i guess um i don't know if that makes sense like that is fascinating to me um because it it almost feels like more emotionally resonant because it is such a stereotypically masculine space and because there is still more going on than just, I don't know, masculine posturing, <laughs> I guess, if that makes sense. That was Stephanie's 
feminist rant of the evening. It was a good one. Thank you. Uh, but, <laughs> but yes, no, I, I feel like, and that's one thing that this movie really nails is the emotional beats, which was so very necessary for this kind of story. Um, well, just because of the kind of story that it is, it isn't just about like who wins the day and defeats the bad guy. Like, it's not even about that. Like the Germans don't really factor into it at all. Like you never really see them. The only, um, the only German that you see on screen is the one pilot guy, who. Well, there's the pilot, and then there's the guy he strangles. Right, right. The and guy, then the two or three yeah. other Germans yeah. that try and shoot him in Akus. That's true. I'm a dumbass. Um, that. No, you're not a dumbass. It's the. <laughs> what? My my. Just goes on a very very poignant. <laughs> Uh, uh, monologue, and then I'm well, dumb. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. My point... S- Stephanie contains multitudes, okay? Whatever. Okay, my point was that it's not about the Germans as an entity. Right. It's about, it's about him and his journey and the people on his side and what prevents him from getting there. That's the only place when the Germans come in as, as momentary obstacles, I guess. Yeah. And so... I forgot what I was going to say. Ha! Oh, God. This is what I get from monologuing. Um, <laughs> you sly dog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, shit. So, but, but yeah, it's about his journey to save people on his side. And some, something like that. Yes. I, <laughs> I can't remember what I was going to say. That's okay. Oh, I'm sad now. I, I was formulating a thought. Um, yeah. I've talked long enough. Uh, shut up. I, well, no, don't shut up. No, don't shut up. Shut up, shutting up. <laughs> the, the way they're given their mission, and, you know, they say, well, first they think it's impossible because they think that the Germans are waiting for them. But they're not. The Germans really have moved on for the most part. Um, so they think it's going to be easy. Their superiors think it should be simple enough, you know, to just all they have to do is deliver this message. Even even Schofield himself says, we don't have to leave now. We have plenty of time. We can wait until dark. We can wait until dark and then still have plenty of time to get all the way to to the Devons to deliver the message. But interestingly enough, there is a quote or rather a paraphrase of a quote from um a German uh, tactician. I don't remember if he was a gen- uh, from a, from a general, um, a Prussian general. Sorry, Helmut von Moltke, the Elder. That goes. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Ooh, that's scary. Which is which mm. is the paraphrase of it, um, which is true in this in this situation. You know, as soon as they hit German, the German land, they, uh, the, the tripwire that's left for them, you know, they, 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 mm-hmm. they're wondering what traps are left for them after that. Then, you know, they hit another, they encounter another German and Blake is left dead. And now Schofield has to carry on alone. And then he gets to Akust and he, where he's just supposed to be able to just walk through and get to the forest on the other side. And guess what? There's more enemies and he has mm-hmm. to figure out what to do there. Mm-hmm. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Right, it's road of trials. Damn. You know, you can't just get through Change it and adapt. Yeah, it has to, you have to adapt to the 
the uh, many <laughs> obstacles along the way. Um, and, and it's also funny, just like, I, I noticed how, um, in, uh, Schofield's interactions or encounters, I guess I should say with the Germans in most cases, they would have survived if they would have left him alone. Right. He never starts it. <laughs> right. Um, no. He wouldn't have strangled that one German if he hadn't yelled to try and, you know, get Schofield killed. Yeah, that guy, it drives me crazy because I'm just like, he is staring you right in the face. Why wouldn't you just wait till he was a few yards away and then yell? But instead he wants to get himself killed, I guess. So, yeah, he does. And also the guy that they pull from the plane and I'm like... <laughs> These guys just saved you from burning alive. Why would you just knife them like that? We're, we're talking about Ugh. the war in which, like, the Christmas truce is, like, a famous Reddit TIL, you know, where, yeah. like, on Christmas the soldiers would, like, sing carols back and forth and at one point literally, like, would play a game of soccer before their respective generals shut that down. Um, because sad. you're not allowed to recognize the humanity in your fellow man, Ugh. you know? Was <laughs> so, I don't know. I, to my knowledge, the, the the English weren't known for having horrible POW camps, but I could be wrong. Yeah, maybe you never they know. did. <laughs> or maybe that German, I don't know enough about nothing. Yeah, or maybe that German was just brainwashed as effectively as he needed to be. He yeah, to be an effective soldier. Um, yeah, and it's just sad because it's like it, you see. Like, he's just trying to get through, but at every point, there's, like... Well, it makes sense. It's, like, they're enemy soldiers, so obviously they're going to try to stop him, but it seems like at every point, he gives them a chance to survive, right. and they just don't take it. Right. The sniper takes the first shot at him. Uh, the the German stabs Blake first. The In the town, when he sees the guy in the, under the burning church, the guy charges him and shoots him first. I He... It's a, it's ironic because he never takes the first shot. It's always defensive. And he is not... The message he is attempting to deliver will only save lives on both sides. Yeah, that's it, a He good is point. not delivering a message saying, the Germans are weak at this point, bomb here. Right? So... All he is doing will save English lives, which at the same time will save German lives because it's just preventing an unnecessary conflict. Right. And he is being stopped at every point. Yeah. It, it is interesting just um, this film in the in the pantheon of war movies that came beforehand is that the key piece of information that needs to be delivered is one of... It, it's it's a strategy that's going to save lives, but it can be read as a message of peace. Mm. Like, as you said, this message is only being delivered to stop a massacre. It is not to kill people. It is to literally save lives. The only other thing I can think of that's even close to that off the top of my head is Saving Private Ryan. Mm. I, I do need to watch that. Um, I've heard that's yeah, I guess one I of the good too. war movies. <laughs> yeah. No, yes. A lot of death in that uh, movie. That's always fun. Um, that's No, that's a good point, though. Um, yeah, and it feels like, in a way, once again, we we come around to the whole hero's journey, Arthurian perspective. It's like, in a way, this this is a message of, of hope and of salvation. 
and yet it's like he's at every term he's at every turn he's being prevented from delivering it so it's like the world wants to be at war or at least the people who are in power want to be at war which also is something that comes up um yeah (laughs) we might as well so i had a note about that um Hang on, let me look at my notes. Um, I said, for all the danger and drama of his last run across the battlefield, the real climactic moment takes place rather unceremoniously in the general's room, uh, which I thought was interesting because it's like that's where the real power lies of like the the one person somehow who decides who lives and who dies. Or sorry, I guess I should say the colonel. He's a colonel, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yes I thought that was also interesting and also the way Mark Strong's character says when you deliver the message make sure there are witnesses because mm-hmm. sometimes the person in charge just wants to just just wants to do just their wants thing to fight. just wants to win yeah um, which I thought was interesting because it seemed to be rather emblematic of, of uh, the people in charge being the ones who are really throwing lives into the meat grinder Yep. And deciding like who lives and who dies and not really caring, I guess, who <laughs> who they have to sacrifice in the process as long as they get to win. But, um, that was kind of interesting to me, how the whole thing really just came down to that tiny little room and that that one conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially since it's uh, that is preceded by him running over the top quote unquote with all the bombs going right. off and everything so it is this wide open very tense very dangerous uh situation with the ultimate goal of getting into like you said that tiny room little where intimate room where someone else is gonna call the shot yeah. yeah and it's crazy that that uh i don't know dissonance that uh disparity between those spaces like how it seems like the real danger the real casualty is like running across the battlefield with you know gunfire everywhere and people dropping left and right and yet the real place that decides who lives and who dies is just a A few dudes yeah meeting together Mm -hmm. in a bunker you guys want to know a fun fact sure you know why the 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 newly dug trenches were white because a lot of the countryside of France is chalk, hmm. chalk sediment. Huh. That's why. That's why. That's why those trenches, those freshly dug trenches, were white as snow. I did uh. not know that. I guess yeah. I was kind of. I did kind of notice how white the trenches were in comparison mm-hmm. to some. It's of not the other. sand. It's chalk. Interesting. Huh. And that's how the game of hopscotch works. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> no, the first square doesn't have a landmine, but the second square does. Oh my God. No, just that trench run was very was great. Ooh. Just like just the differences and like I like how he encounters the different officers and they all respond differently. differently. Yeah, yeah. Like that felt very true, very human. You know, some of them are like, "Who the fuck?" and other ones are like, "Okay, he's that way." And then, and then the other one guys just like cry. crying. I know, yeah. like really distressing. Like, oh, right. My man is broken. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't know what he's crying about, but it's really scary. Like when you see someone who's I, supposed to be in a position of power like that, who's just completely I, broken down. If terrifying. If you are at all 
interested in World War One, if you're at all intrigued by this movie and the conditions that it depicts, if you think you can handle it, <laughs> yeah. please go to YouTube and look up an approximation of what drum fire sounds like. Okay. <laughs> We're talking about, no, it's no wonder that these men were broken, because the coin drum fire was, was coined because the enemy guns, the enemy batteries and cannons would be firing so consistently as that they would sound like a constant drumming, like a marching band. Oh but just imagine that for hours at a time, and you're sitting in a hole in the dirt, literally just dirt above you and all around you hearing that going off like if you feel you're up to it I urge you to please put on your best pair of headphones and go look that up and just I've done it before I could not do it for 30 seconds mm -mm. well yeah I have YouTube pulled up for as soon as <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm interested to see how much of it Justin can handle no I think it's a good thing ultimately if you can stomach it to to listen to these to to really try to immerse yourself in that experience because it, I don't know, I feel like it fosters an empathy and a consideration yes. for the precariousness of life. Yes. That, and I mean, unfortunately, yeah. the people who really need to listen to it aren't going to. No. But, but all the same, it, 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 it does well to consider the the vastness of the loss of life that can happen yeah. in these situations and the the value i guess of individual lives one thing i noticed when watching this was um kind of the the last act <laughs> of the movie the way um Schofield has to kind of worm his way through just hordes of men trying to get to the bunker where the colonel is and you kind of begin to realize as he's doing that, as he's trying to fight his way through, that it these could all be dead men that he is mm. he is climbing through if he doesn't get through. Yep. So it's it's that terrible sense of like literally everyone here could die if he doesn't that's, complete his that's mission. Some good filmmaking right there. Literally it's showing the consequences. It's not just telling us a bunch of men right, could die. Right. It is showing us all of the men who right, could die. Right. They're all literally marching to their deaths and the only thing that will stand between them and that is if he gets there before they do. And that is pretty <laughs> horrifying uh, and it lends a real sense of urgency uh, which is like I said something that this movie has in droves in a good way is urgency and immediacy and a sense of a ticking time like yes um, <laughs> it's, and it, it it's good because it doesn't desensitize you to mass loss of life which is Something that is easy to happen, perhaps, when you're studying World War One, because there was such a Just massive because loss of the point. numbers, yeah. Right, the numbers are completely yeah. staggering, and the human mind can't really. That's why it's important to have stuff that? like this. Yes. Like if you're, if you watch 1917 and you're looking for further viewing, I would recommend All Quiet on the Western Front, nice. which is one of my favorite black and white movies, and They Shall Not Grow Old, the documentary by Peter Jackson. Mm -hmm. I really want to see uh, the Peter Jackson documentary. I haven't, 
a huge gap in my uh, in my film knowledge. I haven't seen All Quiet on the Western. It's very either. good. Me it's too. based on a novel of the same name, and it's from the perspective of a group of German soldiers. I remember reading a passage hmm. from it that I actually taught to some of my students a couple years ago um, about, like, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the details. It was, like, a soldier in a foxhole or something, and he finds a dead body of someone on the opposing side, <laughs> and he, he, like, reads letters or something, yes. and it's it's really... And he's struck by, like, how the same right, they the are. Right, the he says, like, how could you be my enemy? It's really heartbreaking, like, that kind of shared humanity between two people on opposite sides. And I think, you know, the this one is not so much between opposite sides, but very much, like, just explores the humanity of people in wartime, which I think is extremely necessary because it feels less like a propagandistic like heroes narrative like i say hero's journey but it feels not so much like a heroic narrative like look at our boys over there fighting to win the war and more like this is what we're doing to human beings yeah <laughs> which yeah. is ultimately the more necessary narrative if you ask me like yeah uh, because that's that's what we do when we throw lives <laughs> into the meat grinder <laughs> Of war. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, fun. <laughs> do you, Stephanie, do you no. have any more notes you'd like to address before we wrap up? Oh, uh, okay. So I had one question. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but um, at the very end, uh, my man's um, Schofield takes out a couple of photos and looks at them. And then he flips one over and it says, come back to us. Um, I couldn't really tell who was in the photos. His wife. It was a picture of his two daughters and his wife. Okay, thank you. I, because I've never gotten to get a, a good enough look at that. Like, mm. I couldn't tell who was in them. See, that puts so much into perspective, actually, because it's like, mm. then it feels like the woman and the baby were very representative of that. Yeah. She asked him if he has kids and he doesn't respond. Right. But if you have prior knowledge of the movie, you know he does. Because oh, after yeah. so after the explosion in the mine shaft, he pulls out his little tin and he looks at the photos, but you can't see them. You don't know yeah. what he's looking at. It's yeah. not until the very last one. But let, let's talk about that last scene for a moment. Oh, yeah. When he talks to Blake's brother oh. and he shakes his hand <laughs> the and tears. the camera the camera pans down to the handshake and you get just that intense sense of like it is done. Like, this was... It wasn't... Yeah, that it, was the end of it, the mission. Right. The end of his mission was not the giving yeah. of the message to the colonel. Right. It was talking to Blake's brother, and that handshake was the transition. That was the giving away of the responsibility. Yep. It is done. It well, is off personal, of his shoulders. That's what makes it... That's what makes it real film, is <laughs> that it's it's not just about the 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 task at hand, the mission. It's also right. about the personal. It's and about then, carrying on his friend's... Legacy. It's done, it's transitioned, and then he can right. wander off to sit under his own tree, sit in the shade. Everyone shall sit under his own vine and fig tree. <laughs> I was trying not to quote <laughs> Hamilton, but then Stephanie did it hey, for that's me. quoting the Bible, so we're all quoting whatever. Um, that's also interesting to me because it, it it's yet another interesting difference between them. Like, Blake very much still felt like a child. Like, because he talked about his, like, mom and sisters, if I remember correctly. Whereas, and like, I guess trees we and... find that 
Schofield actually has a wife and children, so it's like he's an adult, even though yeah. they're not that far apart in age. Mm-hmm. And so it feels all the more tragic that Blake died because he still feels very much like a child. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so, um, yeah. I don't know. That's interesting to me. Um, and it also puts into perspective Schofield talking about how painful it was to go home knowing that he had to leave again. It's not just like going to see his parents. It's, it's like going to see his wife and children. It's better than not go back at all. Right. Like that must have been really hard. So, yeah. Oh. So, oof, <laughs> my feelings. Mm. Do we have anything else? <laughs> I could talk about this movie forever, so I'm going to go ahead and say probably I don't need to say anything else at this we'll moment. We'll wrap it up there. <laughs> I'd say that was, we've had pretty good discussion of these two movies. Yeah, yep. I could always do Absolutely. more. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I will say with 1917 specifically, um, if you haven't seen it yet, again, why are you listening to us? Um, <laughs> right. Please, please, we. I cannot recommend these two movies highly enough, especially 1917. Yeah, definitely. But if you haven't seen it yet, um, I understand uh, why a war movie might not be uh, on your to-do list right now with everything going uh, yes. on. Uh, if you are a U.S. citizen. And if you're um, listening to this episode right after it came out. Who knows what the future holds? Yeah, we're recording this. We're recording this on January. Yeah, who, who even um, knows what crazy shit will have happened by the time this one drops? But uh, <laughs> this this film handles this subject with such care and humanity mm-hmm. that it honestly, I, I was kind of nervous watching it just because I've been stressed out the last yeah. couple of days. Uh, and it really, I don't know, it it doesn't calm you, but it affects you in a way that I feel like is healthy yeah. for us. It feels right hopeful. I mean, it's sense. the same. It's the same impression I get with the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas Newman uh, and, <laughs> and Roger Deakins. Actually, not that I think of it, um, the only one that's missing for Shawshank Redemption is Sam Mendes, but that's fine. Frank yeah. Darabont does a great t- great job, but yep. it's it's and that's. I feel like the is the the most the the epitome of cinema for me is when a film can be so dark and so like deeply disturbing and affecting and yet can leave you with such great hope and such great faith in humanity like <laughs> that's that's like that's a film to me <laughs> <laughs> It is that's the most beautiful synthesis of of tragedy and I don't want to say comedy but like tra- yeah. tragedy and happiness and hope like that is such a beautiful combination and I feel like that I mean this one and the last one and Birdman those both really I, I feel like have a great synthesis of, yeah. of those concepts and it no. just if you want to feel <laughs> if you want to experience <laughs> then you should watch these <laughs> like seriously <laughs> thank you for listening yeah for real I hope this you uh, have been encouraged to either watch these two movies for the first time or watch them again yeah please do just please just cinema <laughs> and if this if this was too 
uh, serious and not popcorny enough for you. Don't worry. Next week we are back with something much more silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, fifty percent silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, alright, so where can we find us, gents? My name's Caleb. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at actual underscore Caleb. Uh, my name's Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Steph has no name on uh, and on Letterboxd at Ray's Left Boob. My name's Justin. You can find me on most social media at Blame It on Butler, and you can find the show on Twitter at Sounds Familiar. Good night, everybody. Peace, y'all. Love ya. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Be sure to check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.